turn now to our time of worship in the Word. We're going to be studying this morning in our, in our series through the Psalms, selections from the Psalms. We're going to be studying from Psalm 8. Let me just encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Um, it, it, as you walk through the Psalms, they're, they're each stand alone, but there is seemingly some, some rhythm or some movement through them, uh, as some say that, that have studied the Psalter. Uh, but as you, as you go through Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 kind of act as a preface for the whole of Psalms. And then uh, Psalm one or Psalm three through seven are all laments. They're just people crying out in anguish and in, in looking to the Lord to work and hardship and those kind of things. They're they're expressing uh, sadness and, and heavy emotion. But when you come to Psalm eight, it is the first chapter of this book that is exclusively set on joyfully praising God the Creator for who he is, for what he's done, for, for working, for sustaining and saving his people. This, this psalm is one of praise. And so we're going to read it, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in and see what the Lord has for us in it. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your fingers, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the word or over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy to be praised. Your name is majestic. Your, your work is evidence of your power. Your, you, you are glorious, and that glory is everywhere. So help us, your people, recognize it and rejoice in it, to celebrate it. Let us be a people who proclaim it and express it in, in the words we say and the things we do. And the thoughts that we express, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who recognize the majesty, the glory of your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So everyone's worshiping something. Everyone worships something or someone. We can't help it. That's what we were created to do. It's designed intrinsically. It's, it, it, it's woven into the very fabric of who we are. We all naturally express devotion and commitment to someone or something. And, 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 and that is often placed on things or people or, or, or things that we value. Like we have these priorities in life. And some people we would honor, but some people we would devote ourselves to, that we would give ourselves to. Some people we would recognize their, their benefit and the, and the reality of, of, of the good that they do in the world, but we don't commit ourselves to them. But we all are worshiping someone or something. 
If you want to know what it is that you worship, I would just encourage you to, to take an inventory of, of things like your money, your time, your energy. How do, you, how do you spend those things? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? Now, I, I want to give everybody here the benefit of the doubt, right? We, we would talk about giving to the church in terms of a tithe, the 10%, that that is a rule of thumb. We would prefer to encourage generosity. But if you're a person who's looking for some direction and and, and how to measure that and what should I do, we're going to encourage as a rule of thumb 10% because kind of biblically it, it, it's a place for us to start. Not a place to stop necessarily, but it's at least a place to, to start thinking about how to give. Now that leaves 90% of our income to do with seemingly as we would want, right? So let's, let's give everybody here the benefit of the doubt. You give 10% of your money, even 10% of your time, even 10% of your energy is given to purposefully, effectively, and, 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 and priority of that 10% is given to the worship of the Lord. Let's just, let's just give each other the benefit of the doubt there that 10% of our whole life is given to his worship. That leaves 90%. Now let me ask you a question because this is really where it gets serious. The 90% of the money, let's just start with the money. The 90% of the money that you're using, are you using that, even though it's yours to use, so to speak, are you using that in a way that's actually honorable before the Lord? Are you using that in gratitude, in honor of the fact that he's made you a steward of all that he's made you a steward? Or are you serving self? Or someone else. In, in your time, I, you think about this. In, in, in our time, time is a limited commodity. We all get the same amount. We, none of us has more. None of us has less. And we, let's just give each other the benefit of the doubt. 10% of our time. I mean, think about it. You showed up. You got up this morning. You showed up. You came. If this accounts for, if this Sunday morning accounts for that 10%-ish time of the week, along with maybe community group and other times that you're with God's people, what about the other 90%? Now, I'm not saying, are, are you in the church building or are you on your knees in your prayer closet or are you somewhere singing praises to God? I'm just saying, in the other 90%, as you rest, as you recreate, as you work, are you doing all that you can do to honor the Lord? Or is it out of devotion, commitment to some other thing? How about your energy? I mean, we'll all sacrifice for something we want, right? Let's, let's not pretend that getting up and coming to church is an easy thing, especially if you're, if you're not, not just taking care of yourself. You've got to get kids ready, and there's plenty here this morning. You've got to get kids ready. If you've got you to do more than just get up, brush your teeth, put your clothes on, and get out the door, it, there's a sacrifice to come with it. But the things we want, the things that we desire, the things that we value, the things that we prioritize, aren't we willing to go to great lengths to have them? Let's just suggest, that. let's just give each other the benefit of the doubt that at least 10% is given. In, in, in sacrificing our lives and giving up all the other things we could be doing to honor the Lord, what about that other 90%? Who does it reveal is most important to you, is most the highest devotion, the, the highest honor, the highest praise. Who is getting it? Does the overarching theme of our lives demonstrate that our devotion is to the Lord 
or something or someone else. See, everybody's worshiping something. But in this psalm, David makes clear that God alone is high enough, worthy enough, deserving enough, primary enough to be the object of our worship. He alone is worthy. And he doesn't just make that claim. I'm not here to say that all of your life is to be given to the glory of the Lord simply because I think it's true. I'm here to show you, I'm here to say alongside David, it is absolutely true, but there is great reason for it. He gives us reason to join him in his joy-filled praise. And here's the point. Here's here's the the main point of the message. We're going to break this down through the rest of the message. The majestic glory, I think it's the point of the psalm, the majestic glory of the Lord is revealed in all his works. Mankind is blessed to be able to reflect it and recognize it. The majestic glory of the Lord is revealed in all his works. Mankind is blessed to be able to reflect it and recognize it. As such, there is a right and good response to that. Commenting on this psalm, Derek Kinder, uh, he's, he's a theologian and pastor. He writes, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he's done, relating us and our world to him, with, all with a masterly economy of words and, a, and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. David can't help but recognize God's majestic glory. He can't help but, but, but respond in praise and adoration and in awe as he considers the work of God's hands. I'll never forget one time, it was shortly after we planted the church, there was a, a guy coming to the church and in one of our Bible studies he, was, he, he, he took offense to the fact that we were talking about the things that God had done in, in the Bible, so I, I, I say take offense. I, that might be too strong, but he, he wanted to make a clear point. We were talking about the things that God had done in our lives and giving him praise for it. And he, and he stopped us in the middle of it to make the clear point that, hey, God, God isn't worthy to be worshipped because of what he's done. God's worship, worthy of worship because of who he is. And that is absolutely true. He is just simply worthy of worship. He is majestic and he is glorious. But over and over we see across the Bible, especially in the Psalms, that God is shown to, be, shown to be majestic and glorious, not simply by showing who He is, but by doing what He does. We know Him to be majestic and glorious because we see His work in the world. And this is what David is responding to. He is paying attention. He is thinking on. He is focusing on who God is. And then looking at the world, and he cannot help but praise and rejoice and, and, and stand in awe of this majestic and holy God. So much so that it's going to drive him to a question that even gives God further glory. Listen, it, it, it is shocking that, that God is mindful of man. It is shocking that he cares for man when we know about who man is and what man does. But in God's consideration and care, even that is an expression of his majesty. And glory, we're going to see that as we work through here. Because God is the one who made us and placed us, and he's the one who gets all the credit for it. 
David, David never intended these words to do anything less. As, as I read the different takes on this psalm, as I read through a number of different commentaries and different perspectives, there was different ideas about why he's asking the question, why he's, he's speak, speaking and exalting man in some way. I, I think, and, and I think it's clear, and I think this is the predominant view, that David never intended these words to do anything other than praise God. And he demonstrates that both in his opening words and his closing words. He, he, he starts with a phrase and he ends and he closes it with a phrase. There's this, it's called an inclusio, inclusio. And, and so, so it kind of bookends both ends of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is, is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He starts that way and he closes with those same exact words, because everything in the middle is demonstrated, is, is presented as a reason to give God praise. So let's deal with this. Oh, Lord. So it starts, oh, Lord. That's the proper name of God. If you look, uh, most English translations do this, uh, but Lord, that first Lord is all caps. It's small caps, but it's, it's a capital L and then small caps, O-R-D, Lord. That's representative of the proper name of God. Now, the, the Jews, they didn't want to say his name because they were scared of taking it in vain. And so they would say, uh, in place of that name, and in fact, in my Hebrew classes, that's they, the, the, the professor, when we would come to this in the class, he would actually say Adonai instead of Yahweh. The, 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 it's the proper name of God. This is the covenant God, the God who, who, who entered into covenant with Moses, the God who, who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, the God who from the mountaintops, made himself known to all of Israel and after leading them up out of Egypt. This is God. It's his proper name. He said, oh, Lord, that, that's God, our Lord. And that is the word Adonai. And so they would read this, oh, Adonai, our Adonai, but really it's oh, Yahweh or Jehovah, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. And the original pronunciation is debated but O Yahweh, or Jehovah, our Adonai, our Lord. And that, that, that is a, it's majesty, it's supremacy, it's, it's ruler. The idea here is our God is our, O Lord, you are our authority. You, God, who is over all things, you are our authority. You are majestic. Your name is majestic in all the earth. That's what David wants people to know. That's why he's writing this psalm to sing praises to this God, to make known that God is worthy of praise and adoration, that he is majestic over all things. At every point through the psalm, David makes that point and wants us to, to understand that point. And so then he begins to give evidence to the fact that, O oh Lord, our Lord is majestic in all the earth. It begins in the second half of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. You set your glory above the heavens. You made yourself known above the heavens. You don't, your, your glory isn't down here with us. Your glory is transcendent. It's beyond. It's, it's over. It's, 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 it's eternal. It's above the heavens. And a lot of times we wrestle with this term glory and we wonder exactly how to define it. Some people would speak of it in terms of light. Some people would speak of it in terms of his worthiness. And I appreciate John Piper's definition of God's glory. He, he says this, the glory of God is the going public 
of his infinite worth. If you go on in that article, uh, and I can send it to you if you'd like, just let me know after. But if, if you go along in that article, he's connecting God's glory to his holiness, but, but ultimately he's wanting, he's wanting to, to demonstrate that God's glory is the public expression of all of his perfections, of all of his goodness, of, of his power, his infinite worth, his weightiness, his, his supremacy, that God is making it known. Here, here's the thing. God is glorious. He is above all. He is worthy of worship. He is great. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, in all places, at all times, never learning, because He's omniscient. He is all of those things. And He doesn't have to hear from us that He's all of those things. He simply is all of those things. But God has made all of those things about himself. He has made himself known. He has gone public. He has expressed his infinite worth in the world as he has put the world together, as he holds the world together, and as he redeems the world from the curse. He is showing publicly his infinite worth. He's making it known. He he always has been, always will be these things. And by demonstrating his glory in the world, we get to experience. You set your glory. He's done this work. This is an act of God. Verse 2 goes further from the mouths of babes. Look at what he says. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you established strength because, because why? Because of your foes. So there's enemies that stand against him. There's people of power that would seek to to stand against God, to to rebel against God, to reject God. And what does God do? Shows his power through weakness. Now, this could be a very literal literal thing. It it could be intended by David to say, you know what? There are babies and infants who who have actually said things or... I tend to think it's probably more metaphorical. It's probably more figurative than, than literal. I mean, let's take, for example, John the Baptist was, before he was born, he left in his mother's room. Mary comes into the room after, uh, to, to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. And, and she comes into the room, and, and Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb. And... and she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she recognizes this baby left in the womb because he recognizes that you're carrying the Savior, and, and she's blown away, and she's amazed. So absolutely, there could be a literal, literal understanding of this. Jesus references, references this psalm in, as, the, as he's entered into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry and, and facing off against the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He reminds them that God ordains praise from the mouth of infants and and, and children. But, but I think this is probably more figurative in the sense that Paul would later, not referencing this psalm, but he would say something very similar in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose, chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Just think of, of what this demonstrates about who God is. And, and his glory and his majesty. He takes the weakest of the weak and he shames the strongest of the strong. Could you imagine? 
You know, the picture of David facing off against Goliath. What's the picture presented to us there? David, there's no way David can win. Who in their right mind would send David out with five stones and a sling? Against a giant, against a trained warrior, against their champion. God uses the weak things of the world to show himself strong. Because he has to show himself strong through the weak things. Because there's people who actually think they can stand against him. How foolish, how arrogant. But he gives them power. He endues them with glory and honor themselves. He demonstrates through them his own majesty. You set the glory, your glory above the heavens from the mouths of babies. You established strength. He did this work. This is God's work. In verse 3, it's this consideration in verse 3 that's going to lead to David's question. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, think about that. This happens to me when I... When, when I stand uh, out in the mountains, in fact, I love going to the mountains. I, I, I have had the opportunity a couple times to go into the Rockies. I had an opportunity a few years ago to go to, uh, uh, to, go to Peru and meet some missionaries and see their work there and go into the Andes Mountains. And I mean, golly, it's this humbling, awe-filled moment. Like this, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Man, I'm just barely breathing on top of some of these things. Like the highest we got was just under 18,000 feet. And it's like, just to walk up a little bit further, to think, oh, I'm going to get to 18,000 feet. Can't hardly breathe. Have you ever stood in the mountains and recognized that sense of, that, that sense of humility and humbling and smallness? And have you ever stood at the edge of the, the, the ocean? Like a, a few years ago, I was standing out, on, on the west coast, standing, it was somewhere in Southern California. I can't remember the name of the city. I'm standing out of the pier, so I can't even see the sand off to my side. I'm, I'm surrounded by ocean. This pier's long. I walk out to the end of it, just looking. As far as I can see, ocean. And, and I can't even imagine how deep it goes at, at, the, at the length that I can see. I can't even understand what's happening under it. I can't fathom what's, what, the, the world that lies beneath it. Suddenly, I'm struck with that same sense. I'm not really a beach person. I mean, look at me. I'm not a beach person. I, my, I, I am struck with that same sense of awe, smallness. And ever laid out under the night sky? I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I lay there and in the dark, and if you get if you get into the woods away from the city lights and look into the sky and you see the multitude and multi, I mean, just amazing. All of a sudden, made small. And it's this majesty, it's this glory. As David looks out and he sees it, he's like, "You are so worthy." And leads him to this question. But even in the question, it's, it's God's mindfulness of man and, and his care on display for mankind 
that strikes awe in him. These, these questions are offered as much in praise as every other offering in this psalm. They are not doubt. They are not skepticism. They are not him questioning and trying to figure God out in some way. Just in awe. Look at everything. And you are mindful of me. Put yourself in David's place. He's considerate of you. He thought of you. He thought of me. He thought of us. He's he's considerate. He's thinking. He's planning. He's working. And then in verses 5 through 8, as he continues through the psalm, and he even turns and begins now, on the one hand, it seems that he's beginning to exalt man. They can't be exalted because they are placed... They are made and they are placed by God. It is God who made us. It's God who placed us. It's God who crowned us with glory and honor. All that we have that is glorious and honorable is from Him. This whole psalm, the whole thing, is to show us that the Lord's majesty, the Lord's glory, are revealed in all His works and in all the earth. This is a psalm of praise. The Lord's majesty and glory are revealed in all His works and in all the earth. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, There is no place where God is not. The miracles of His power await us on all sides. Traverse the silent valleys where the rocks enclose you on either side, rising like the battlements of heaven till you can see but a strip of the blue sky far overhead. You may be the only traveler who has passed through that glen. The bird may start up affrighted and moss may tremble beneath the first tread of human foot. But God is there in a thousand wonders. He's already been there and has always been there. That's not his words. Those are mine. The first tread of human foot, but God is there in a thousand wonders, upholding you rocky barriers, filling the flower cups with their perfume, refreshing the lonely pines with the breath of his mouth. Descend, if you will, into the lowest depths of the ocean where undisturbed water sleeps and the very sand is motionless and unbroken quiet, but the glory of the Lord is there, revealing excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea. This is from Psalm 139. But God is there. Mount to the highest heaven or dive to the deepest hell. And God is in both hymned in everlasting song or justified in terrible vengeance. Everywhere and in every place, God dwells and is magnificently at work. Is manifestly at work. It's right to hold this high and exalted view of our God because He alone is worthy. Let me just ask you a question just to consider as you think about where we started. How does the thing that we will so often devote ourselves to, commit ourselves to, all the things we give that 90% to, how do they measure up to this glorious God? And this question that David asks, I mean, when you think about that, when you think about, oh, wait a minute, I know I don't, I don't measure up to what he's done. What is mankind that God is mindful of him? It is the right question. I mean, it's the, it's the exact appropriate response when we're honest about who we are and who God is. In contrast of God's creative powers, the breadth and, 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 and totality of his power and presence in the world, 
What is mankind that we deserve his attention? And the only clues to the answer to this question are given not by what we've done, but by what God has bestowed on us. Remember, he made man. We are the work of his hands. We are the ones who have been created and placed in order in creation by what God has done. He's the one who bestowed glory and honor upon us. He established our purpose. He created our ability, our, 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 our uh, mission to exercise dominion over the physical realm. Here, here, the beauty of this is, is, is that the closest answer we get, the cl- closest clue that we get is that we were, we were created to be representatives of him. We were created to be reflections of him. We were, we were to be in the physical world what God has been and always will be to all of his creation. But we were never intended to do this apart from him. We were supposed to do this within an intimate, dependent, and submissive relationship. When we recognize that David's writing these words of praise in a world that God is, in a world that God has enemies, just think about that. David's writing these words of praise and adoration and asking this question, what is man that you are mindful of him in a world in which this God has enemies? Enemies. These words are all the more astonishing. David's own people, God's covenant people, have a pretty spotty history of living in submission to him, recognizing his lordship, recognizing his actual majesty. David himself, the king, a man after God's own heart, had his worst acts recorded in the scripture for all of us to read. It's clear he struggled with understanding God's majesty and and glory at times, his lordship and his supremacy. Yet this God created all of this. What is mankind that God is mindful of him? I think the short answer is blessed. We are blessed to be able to reflect God's glory in God's creation. Look, look at what he's done for man. He's considerate of him. He, he cares for him. He's placed glory and honor on him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly black beings. Crown him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. And, and, and there's this clear reflection, this clear pressing back and looking back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Where God sets man in, in the world where God creates man and gives purpose for, for, for creating man. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, the, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. And again, you go back to Psalm 8. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. David is remembering what God has done in creating man. Back to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. He, all, the creeps, all that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Created us in his image as reflections and representatives of him. We make him known. We fill the world with his image. And under his authority, we exercise his authority. We were to be, the, in the physical world, we were to be what he is in all of creation. 
We were blessed to be created for this role. This is why all human life has value. This is why we don't abort babies. It's why we would speak out against euthanasia, taking people because, killing people because they're sick or because they're old or because they don't have purpose in our eyes. Every life has value. Every person, even in their sinful state, is still a reflection of God in his image. And every person, even in their sinful state, is a representative of God's glory. We can't help but do these things. I'll never forget the first time I, I realized this in, in the fullest sense. It wasn't, I wasn't even reading the Bible. I was, I was standing. I had gone with uh, Amy and the boys had gone to Chicago. And we were standing on top of the, what I think now called the Willis Tower. It used to be the Sears Tower. Standing on that hot top of that skyscraper and, and, and walking around the sky deck and looking at the skyline from a position, kind of looking down on it. And still, I, just, I suddenly found myself being moved. And, and, and I had felt that thing before. I had felt that, that sensation in my heart. I had felt the way, and it dawned on me that I felt the way I had felt when I stood in the Rocky Mountains the first time and saw just how massive they were and how small I was. And I started to rebuke myself and just chide myself. What are you doing? These are man's works. This is, this is what people have done. This isn't, don't be in awe of this. Man, and then this... It wasn't a voice. I don't want to make it sound like a voice, but this pervasive thought. But who made the man who made these things? We cannot help but give glory to God even in our sinful state because we reflect him and represent him in all we do. We just can't. We were created. We were blessed to be placed in this place. We were blessed to be able to reflect and represent God's glory in God's creation. We're blessed to to be able to recognize God's glory. That David is even speaking these words, that he's writing these words, that he's thinking these thoughts, that he's considering what God has done in creation. How do we know anything about what happened in the beginning? Who was there? Can scientists tell us? Can Adam and Eve tell us? Who can tell us? God can. And God has. He's the one who's made it known that we are able to recognize God's glory in this world. is a blessing to all people. God has not hidden himself from mankind. And even though we don't deserve it, even though we continue as a people, as, as, as a, a, a creation... Generally speaking, all have fallen short, all have sinned, all have fallen short, fallen short. God continues to make himself known. As the writer in Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote, Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he put eternity into man's heart. Every man has an understanding that there's more. Because God has written eternity into our hearts. He's woven it to the very fact, to the very depths of who we are. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can't discover it on our own if God doesn't reveal it. But God has ensured that we understand there is something more. We are blessed to be able to recognize the majesty of God. Then Paul, writing to the church in Rome, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has been known. He's always been revealing himself. His eternal attributes, his divine nature have been clearly perceived. They've been clearly perceptible. They've been clearly uh, uh, discoverable. Since when? Since the creation of the world. And even though they've all sinned, even though that no, no one has honored him or given him thanks as God, and even though we come to Romans 3.23 that says that all have fallen short of his, uh, of his glory, God continues to make his glory known. This is a blessing. And though there will come a time when that blessing will be used as evidence to de- demonstrate his just condemnation, his just wrath uh, against all who reject him, People have still been blessed with the ability to comprehend and perceive God. What is mankind that he would do this? Blessed to be reflections of his glory. Blessed to to be able to recognize his glory. But the truest blessing comes not in what is true of all people. But what is true of those who who, who have trusted in Jesus Christ. The truest blessing comes in knowing him. The majestic glory of the Lord is revealed in all his works. Mankind is blessed to be able to reflect it and recognize it. But in Christ, we are made able to rejoice in it. We're made able to rejoice in it. Everyone in the world reflects God's glory unwittingly in some way. I've already talked about that. Everyone else in the world, everyone else in the world outside of Christ denies God's glory by by seeking to reject his authority and his identity or his but but the very fact that they give any kind of speaking or or knowledge or 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 uh, admission the very fact that they're arguing against their being a god just demonstrates that they're wrestling with the idea of their being a god they're undoing their own arguments here's the reality one day one day those people who have rejected authority and sought to live apart from him. Those people who have stood as his enemies, those people who have stood as antagonists, those ones that God used the infants, the the mouths of babies and infants to to silence, to still, one day that's going to happen. But only in Christ and by Christ are we able to rejoice in these blessings most fully. In Christ, we can rejoice in reflecting God's glory because in Christ, we are being conformed to Christ's likeness. In Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The idea in Psalm 8 is that that God has placed man in this position to represent and to reflect him in the world. And we know that in the Scripture, in the broader teaching of the Scripture, that, that mankind isn't doing that. We've gone our own way. We're like sheep who have gone astray. We're doing everything we can to exalt ourselves and to, to, to do what we want to do. It's not working, but we're trying. But in Christ, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Christ, we are being conformed to more fully reflect God's glory. What we were doing unwittingly before, but in Christ, we are being made able to do purposefully and intentionally. See, everybody will demonstrate God's glory in their life because God is just simply glorious. Even those who are judged and condemned and experience his wrath will represent the glory of God because he is justly condemning them and his glory 
and his glory and justice will be demonstrated when they are justly, when they are rightly condemned. So even God's glory is, is demonstrated there, but, but we have been given an opportunity in Christ, having been conformed and being conformed to the likeness of his son, we now are able to purposefully de- and, and, and even willfully desire to live a life that reflects his glory, that, that recognizes his glory and lives to his glory. In Christ, we can rejoice in reflecting God's glory because in Christ we are being conformed to his likeness. In Christ, we can rejoice in recognizing God's glory because in Christ, the mystery of God's will has been made known. Solomon's left with this mystery. He's he's like, God's made everything beautiful in his time, but he's he's, he's written eternity on man's heart, but not so that man can know what he's doing. But in Christ, the mystery of God's will has been made known so that we can now rejoice. In Ephesians 1, he opens with this, 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 what has been described by at least a couple of people I've read from, a waterfall of worship, verses 3 through 14, this, this explosion of Paul's passionate, just serious, intentional worship of God. He comes to this place, Ephesians 1, 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So, so God's making known his will. He's making known the mystery of what he's been doing for, for those who are in Christ. But then you follow this down a little bit further and you see where Paul actually draws from this psalm to bring into this understanding why this is so important for us. Ephesians 1, 16 through 22, he's praying and he says, I do not give, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... And they give you the spirit of wisdom. So, so listen. Pay attention to what he's saying. He's, he wants them to have wisdom, understanding. He wants them to be able to understand what, what God is about doing. Right? To give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is a prayer for enlightenment, for, for understanding, for knowledge. Experiential knowledge. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So, so, so just he, he wants us to know all that we have to look forward to, all that God has done on our behalf, all the power and in, in working he has done on our behalf. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above. Listen. You're about to see where he's drawing from. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things the church. Now go back to Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. I think there's a way in which these words apply generally to all people, but they apply specifically. Paul recognizes a specific way in which they apply to Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can rejoice in recognizing God's glory because in Christ, the mystery of God's will has been made known. God isn't just doing a work in this world. He's doing a work for the world to come. That is our hope. That is our inheritance. That is he's working by his power through Christ who he has given dominion over all things. He has put all things under his feet. And we only will ever be under shepherds. We only will ever be underlings to Jesus. He is the head over the church. 
He is our Lord. The writer of Hebrews also drawing on this psalm, Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Which world? The world to come, of which we are speaking, and has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than well, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Where's he drawing from? Psalm 8. He's pointing to Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is, this is where we begin to understand what God is doing. The eternal work that he is working, a plan for the fullness of time. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is through Jesus Christ that God has made known what he's doing, and it's in Christ we can now rejoice in recognizing God's glory. If we reject Christ, if we reject what God is doing in him, then we lose our, our, our ability to rejoice because one day, one day, having knowledge of the fact that God is majestic and glorious, even though we might try to deny it, one day reflecting his glory in the world, uh, showing it off even when we don't intend to or don't plan to, one day that's going to be used as judgment against people that reject him and rebel against him and seek to exalt themselves instead of him. But in Christ, God has a plan that's eternal to redeem a people who will always know his glory. In Christ, we can rejoice in God's glory because in Christ, we are forever blessed by God's glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 26, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, the church that had lots of problems He's answering a question about the resurrection. He comes to this place where he writes these words. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Drawing on this psalm. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Adam, we may still reflect the glory of God as God's image bearers. We can't help but do that. We may still be able to recognize the glory of God because he hasn't hidden himself from anyone. But it's only in Christ, it's only in Christ that we have every reason to rejoice in this reality. In Christ, we now have every reason to join with David and sing these words or to pray these words, read these words and contemplate these words. Because in Christ, God has been working to restore in us what we have fallen out of. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You can say that with David. I can sing that with David. Because Jesus gives us every reason to rejoice. Let's pray.